spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 to 2015, starting with number one and working down. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. So here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry, sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, and sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, I have two new albums to talk through, and Tim will make the choice for the subtitles albums list. Then, in part two, Tim will have two new movies to discuss, and I will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movies list. Sometimes I'll have seen the movies, and sometimes Tim will have listened to the albums. But at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we've finished these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with the new list we've collaborated on, but before we can get to there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is Exile in Guyville, Liz Fair's 1993 album, which supposedly is a response to Exile on Main Street, the Rolling Stones album, and... I don't know that that matters much to me when I listen to this, but it's an interesting, like, curio, I think. Who knew? <laughs> I, who knew the album starting with Exile in the title could be um, a response to the Stones? But I, that is important and informative in a way because Exile in Guyville is really an album about reclaiming uh, female agency and power and control of narrative in particular, which is what I want to look at mostly with this album. This is one that is very well regarded and well remembered, obviously. Um, this is pretty high on the spin list, and it's simultaneously surprising and not surprising to me. It's such that I see it at number seven and i'm like oh yeah that makes sense like spin is exactly the type of outlet that would love uh, an album like exile and guyville but at the same time i'm like if you just tell me riff 20 albums that could be the top seven of any of these it's not one that i'm going to think of immediately and part of that is it's another one it's sort of like daft punk in a way it's like i can recognize the importance of it and like i get it but i don't get it on like a personal level like it just doesn't hit me in the same way and i you know that that probably says more about me than liz fair um i think it is definitely a good album it's nice to see it i raised my hand to be called on i don't know if you guys could see that while i did it but i did (laughs) so so this is this is the highest 
album by a by a woman on this list, right? Correct. And by a by a fair bit. Uh, let me number eighteen is going to be the next one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was looking at too. Okay, so like, that's that's very interesting to me. Just I'm I'm just a little not again. I'm not someone who knows a whole lot about this stuff, and I hate it when people come into movies and they're like, I don't understand why Citizen Kane is so big. So like, I don't want to be that guy. But at the same time, this if you had if you had given me several chances, this is sort of what you said, but several chances to like guess what the highest album by a, by a woman would be on this list. Um, I wouldn't have gotten to Liz Fair first. I wouldn't have either. I would have gotten to probably what's at number eighteen. Yeah, that would have been easier for me. Uh, after that, I'm not offhand. I don't remember where the next one even is. I think a lot of them are towards the back half of the spin list. Um, but yeah, that, that's a good note that this is definitely the highest and the highest by some margin on the spin list uh, in terms of albums by by women. So exciting new territory. We have an album by a woman and a new perspective, and certainly there's a good bit of genre diversity in all the albums before this, um, and a good bit of progressivism um, in all the ones before this, but uh, new and important territory here, which makes me sad that it's one that like just doesn't totally connect with me, but maybe that's sort of the point that like in the end, it's not really an album for me. Like This is an album for women and their experiences, and it's one that I can look at and support and be like, yep, that's a good thing but not totally connect with on like a visceral level. Um, so I don't know. That's sort of my caveat um, or, or I guess beginning explanation of my relationship with Exile and Guyville. Um, Liz Fair, sort of an interesting character, not in the like she's insane way of saying that, but just in this is her debut album and it blew up quick and got her a lot of popularity that she was, I don't know, she's never seemed totally comfortable or easy in that level of fame. And she kept making music and by all accounts, she seems to have a nice and happy life. Um, but there was a lot surrounding the production and the release and then the aftermath of this album, uh, just in terms of how she's actually relating to fame, how she's existing with that level of popularity and kind of, unfortunately fittingly all of the the dudes around her um, which is exactly what exile and guyville is trying to take the air out of is uh, a, a masculine dominated rock scene which aren't they all but especially the one in chicago in the early 90s that fair is coming out of um and exile and guyville is sort of this uh, just this punch up at that system and kind of this breath of fresh air into that entire scene. And it's, it's kind of famously crass. Um, I don't think ever in like a pandering or a, um, a pointless way, but in a way of just embodying, I am a woman. These are my experiences. We have sex too. And think about guys and, like this, if you heard a dude singing about this, you wouldn't bat an eyelash. But suddenly, it's coming from a woman's mouth, 
and it seems shocking and risque. Um, and I think that is uh, in large part the brilliance of Exile and Guyville, that it just puts those things out there and does not make attempts to, like, I'm not going to justify this, I'm not going to contextualize this, like, I'm a woman, we think in these ways, like, deal with it or don't. Um, so I think to that end, the most famous line, probably, I'm going to read. I'm going to do something a bit different with this episode, and I'll talk about them more when we get into the replacement episodes, but it sort of starts here. I want to talk about lyrics and, and individual songs very particularly. Uh-oh. Are you doing the thing where you drop something on me and we haven't talked about it? Am I getting the favor returned this quickly? Nah, maybe. Not necessarily. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to rank things. All right. All right. I was, um, my, I was ready. Um, maybe I will. Maybe I'll decide there's a place for that. No, I just, <laughs> I want to look at, okay, so... The big hits from Exile and Guyville are Never Said and Six Foot One. And we'll get to them in a minute. But I think in terms of legacy of embracing female sexuality, the most famous song is Flower, which starts with these lines. And I'm just going to read these straight. Every time I see your face, I'll get all wet between my legs. Every time you pass me by, I heave a sigh of pain. Every time I see your face, I think of things unpure, unchaste. I want to fuck you like a dog. And it goes on from there. And the famous line is, I want to be your blowjob queen. And it's definitely unchaste. But at the same time, it's like, that's... I don't know, that's just a level of honesty and forthcoming and sort of rawness that women don't often get the space to actually have or to embody um, musically. And that Exile and Guyville was so well accepted and regarded. Um, that, that continues to amaze me a little bit, that there could be a song like Flower that just says, I want to be your blowjob queen, and is pretty clear about that. And, um, it, and yet this album isn't... I guess what I'm saying is I'm amazed Tipper Gore didn't try to take this one down too. Didn't she? I think that's maybe the best way to... <laughs> um, there's a reference for everyone. So there's that. Um, there's a song like... or There's several songs like this. There's something like Fuck and Run, which just uh, ruminates on one-night stands and how every relationship, it seems, is fucking and running and how Liz Fair wants more. And it's just interesting to hear that from the other... Um, perspective, so to speak, that it's not a dude dreaming of a one night stand, or that like, like there's not a there's a vulnerability to it, but it's not like oh woe is me. It's just what is this? Why can't this be different? Like I need more. I, I need more. It's not that like I'm clinging to thoughts of a guy who ran away. It's just like this is what it is, um, and I deal with it. But like why can't why can't love, why can't sex be more? Um, and Six Foot One leans into similar space, um, which really just takes the air out of some leech fuckboy that Liz Fair has apparently dealt with right before writing this. Um, and it's, I mean, that's basically what it is. Like It's, a, it's a, a dude trying to use her for money, resources, time, whatever it is. Um, but it's a parasitic relationship. And the line at the end of that is, I love my life and I hated you. And 
this is the first track on the album. I think it's honestly the best track on the album, which is sort of a thing because it's tough when your first track, I think, is your best one. Um, but it really sets the tone and the mission statement for the whole thing where it's like, I love my life. I, I am a woman. I am proud. I am happy. I am strong. But man, screw these guys <laughs> in, in either literal or metaphorical senses, depending on the song. Uh, and then Never Said is, I think, the biggest single. Um, probably still so. And lyrically is interesting because it's a lot of iterations of I Never Said Nothing and then references to like events, vague events that happened that Fair who, or whomever the narrator is never said anything about. And it just begs the question the whole time. It's like, well, never said nothing about what? Um, and I think that encapsulates a lot of what's important about Exile and Guyville, that it's a woman resting control of narrative, um, that she's taking the story and choosing what to say and what not to say, and can lead other people along as to what that means. Um, we can fill in guesses, whether that's like it was an affair, whether it was... Um, you know, some scan, some other type of scandal, whatever it was that nothing was said about. Um, we're left hanging, but Liz Fair is left in control. And I think that's the legacy of this album. And I think it's a very important one. And I think Liz Fair continues to inspire female artists in particular. Um, but that also relates partly to what I said. Like, I don't think it matters if I get this album or not, because it's not really for me. And that's great like it doesn't have to pander to me and it shouldn't um as a white dude who could easily be a subject of one of these songs if i were um i I guess in chicago in the early 90s is what i'm (laughs) going for here but um but it's not just all that though there's stuff like um divorce song or stratford on guy which contrary to that last one's title is that one's about flying over Chicago and just like realizing our own smallness in the face of the world. Um, and it has some really lovely descriptions of just flying and seeing the world and transitioning from farmland to the city to Chicago itself. Um, and divorce song is right. The tension of a relationship as they're driving and, and arguing over all these very small quirks, Um, and like, it's a relationship that's run its course in that way. And you just find the smallest things to be angry about. So she's a very good narrative writer. And I think, again, that's the very important legacy of exile and Guyville, um, her control of that and her ability to weave woman focused and woman centered narratives. Um, anything you want to say about Liz Fair exile before I introduce the category? bridging myself into it, but I, I don't know if you have anything, Tim. Just thinking about her as a performer, um, I'm reminded of my middle school band director who was always very big into suggesting that someone who's like singing, you should be able to hear them very clearly and you should know what they're saying. And that's like part of the artistry, even if their voice is like prettier and you can't understand them, then that you're losing something. Um, I think about that with her a, a fair bit, just this idea that I don't, I don't know, she doesn't strike me as, like, someone with this beautiful singing voice, but the absolute, like, crazy clarity, like, understand every single word, every single song. And there are, like, 
a gazillion songs on this album, and every word of it is is entirely comprehensible, and it just it just makes her message all the more potent. I think like what she is thinking about comes through all the more strongly because of that, and that's that's something that you you can't put too high a price on. I don't think. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And while the most famous songs from this album are the full band efforts, most of the eighteen tracks are just her doing the singer-songwriting thing. Um, it's her with a guitar. They sort of live in the mid-range. Um, like, there's not exciting pyrotechnics going on here, but there doesn't need to be because it is about Liz Fair. It's about her voice. It's about what she's saying. It's about what she thinks and feels and experiences. Um, and I don't think the importance of that can be understated, especially for women coming up and... You know, we just look at the 90s and 2000s, male-dominated rock spaces. Um, You know, Liz Fair is an icon to a lot, I think, and rightfully so. Um, But yeah, I think that's a very good point, though. Like, her voice is always vocal, um, and her vocals are always the point of focus and of departure for these songs. Um, And to that end, the category I want to introduce and talk about is a pun on Liz Fair's uh, second album, and it's Whip Smart Women. And so I want to think about two different albums, obviously written and performed by women, that share in that legacy of narrative control and well, of resting narrative control and of just being very smart and clever lyrically uh, and being very focused on the experience of the the artist in particular and their life and what they want to say and um, not dominating but definitely controlling the um, <clears throat> the framing uh, in very important and good ways. So we're going to talk about Alanis Morissette and Jagged Little Pill from 1995, and then we will talk about Courtney Barnett and her 2015 release. Sometimes I sit and think, and sometimes I just sit. Which I think is a great album title. Um, so I guess point to her in the whip smart category for album titles, but let's go back to Alanis. Jagged Little Pill is not an unknown thing. It's sold like 33 million copies or something. Like this is an insanely popular album. It always has been. It was nominated for nine Grammys. It won five of them. Alanis was 21 at the time, by the way. What? I always think that's just baffling. Yes. <laughs> I did not know that. Yes, Alanis was 21 when this album came out, and she was meeting all of this massive success. Um, (laughs) Right? Um, And Jagged Little Pill, I I honestly don't know what the the general consensus impression of it is today. Um, I think it's important to a lot of casual listeners. I don't know what critics really say. I think they're definitely vociferous defendants of it. It's not on the spin list at all. Um, I mean, I can say that much at least. I don't think it was anyway. Um, it, it talk, may have I'm going to do some research. But I, it's certainly not in the top 100, which I think is a great oversight because this thing has hits and has tunes and like every song is 
or it, every song could have been a single and half of the time something new comes on and it's like wow that was a single too like i've heard that on radio before and like that that's most of this album and i think or you can call that some people probably would that that's like too commercial that's selling out but that speaks to a great power of songwriting that so much of this album can be so catchy and so lasting and there are four or five songs on here that will be played on on radio and that will be in public consciousness for a long long time and then then that's amazing that that someone can write that and that they can write it at 21 um but the power of this album is how raw and unvarnished it is um lyrically in particular the music is very polished um and it's a great meeting of some grunge some post-grunge stuff with with great pop sensibility um it's not exactly bubble grunge but it's sort of like leading the path to that so like it's a new way forward for alternative rock really that's very catchy that's very melody focused but also taking some of the raw appeal of something like grunge I thought you may have been researching if I was right or wrong about Morissette on the list, but I don't know if you found anything. Oh, I was just looking generally at um, right or wrong about Morissette and the, the critical consensus, and it's sort of like Rolling Stone seems to know she's alive. Apparently in 2003 they put this album like 327 out of 500 or something. Um, but just a quick Wikipedia look suggests that it's like I think everybody is saying it's good, but there are not a lot of people who are like going out of their way to call it great, great, great. Well, let me be that person because it is great, great, great. Um, I've actually written about it before. It's on the blog somewhere. It's old though, so that one's buried. Um, but here's what I said. I wanted to do a bit of a, a different structure with this episode and it's not all that different. If you listen to our library blues one, um, what I did with Los Campesinos, where dug into particular lyrics and songs. I, I want to thread that through our discussions of Morissette and Barnett. Because if I'm talking about Whip Smart, I should give their voices the time and the shine and look at what they're actually writing and why this stuff is so clever and important. So we're going to go through a series of songs for each album. And I'll just introduce pieces of them and yeah, talk about significance from there. Jagged Little Pill, you're going to recognize a lot of these songs because, as I said, this thing has hits on hits on hits. Um, and if Liz Fair is, like, if Exile and Guyville is this statement of um, uncompromised sexuality and kind of an anger, or, or not an anger, of a sort of snideness, really. Um, that like Liz Fair is clever and she knows it and she's kind of the um <laughs> this will be a funny segue I guess um she is kind of the ironic one of the bunch here Ooh. um <laughs> and I mean you can see that like on the the album cover too which I forgot to mention which is bad of me but there's like half the nipple appearance um she has a coat on with the hood up but like it's totally open on her chest and it's like that teasing like yo what are you going to do about it you can't really censor this and like this is my body and also just the sneer she has like that's her vibe um so if Liz Fair is that Alanis Morissette on Jagged Little Pill and from all I've heard and read like she's not like this at all in person i think but this is just anger righteous anger um and that makes this album even stronger 
So we'll start with All I Really Want, which is the opening track, probably the rockiest, the grungiest um, of the whole affair. And I think that's a good thing. And we get immediately what's really special about Morissette, I think, is just her voice and how she can contort that and just ways she finds to say different things. So the second line, uh, she says, and you say how appropriate. Um, And the way she bends and twists appropriate in that, I'm not going to attempt to recreate because I will scare all the children away, but... She does that throughout the entire album. Like she'll just take words and twist them and mutate them and just elongate syllables or just like the range of uh, um, um, emoting she can do with her voice, which I don't think like, like in terms of music theory, in terms of like that sort of range, octave range, all that thing, all that stuff. Um, I don't think she has like a super notable voice in that way, but the way she can contort it um, is really unique to her. I don't think anyone else is really doing quite what she does in that way. The yodel. Hmm? She can do like like a yodeling thing. Like there's yes. this like yip <laughs> that goes into it that is is very, very country and I don't usually like it, but for her, it just makes sense in a way that I find very compelling. Because it's like this outburst of feeling and anger when she does it, and like the yodel works in that way. That it's just like words don't like words don't mean anything here. Just yodel. Um, <laughs> like that's often like it fits into lines. It's not just superfluous. Like let me do this now over the bridge or whatever. It's like there's a recognizable verse happening and then it's like a yodeling line in the middle of it. Um, um, but yeah, just the sound she's able to create with her voice and the way she's able to twist stuff, I think is always thrilling really through most of these songs. Um, verse three of all I really want, um, is the one I, well, that into the pre-chorus is really what I want to pull out here. So why are you so petrified of silence here? Can you handle this? Did you think about your bills, your ex, your deadlines, or when you think you're going to die? Or did you long for the next distraction? And all I need now is intellectual intercourse, a soul to dig the hole much deeper, and I have no concept of time other than it is flying. If only I could kill the killer. I think, and that's, um, there's another chorus, but like that's basically the end of the song. And... I think that sets the tone for everything to come where it's on the one hand really taking the piss out of all of these guys who don't understand women and who are just looking for the next distraction and aren't actually thinking of anything seriously. Um, And it's sort of this response from, you know, the trope would be the scorned ex and Alanis sort of leans into that and then obliterates the entire trope to where it's, I can be that. And we're going to get to that in the next song. Um, But also make that a position of power. And I think that's what that verse does well. But then just the idea of, if only I could kill the killer. And earlier in the song, that's, if only I could, or if I could hunt the hunter. Um, And I think it's not a far stretch to say, that's men there. Like that's, but wants a statement on the musical enterprise of this whole thing, on social justice, on relationships, on so many different things. Um, and then Jagged Little Pill is this attempt to kill the killer, to make this a, a woman-centered narrative. 
Um, and to that end of positioning oneself as that scorned lover, as that scorned woman, and then blowing that trope up and making it something new and something powerful. We get to you ought to know, which everyone knows. It's about the full house guy. We and know they this. <laughs> what? And they oughta. And they oughta. It's, it's <laughs> you ought to know. Um, no, it's a great song. Like I, I think the the f- honestly kind of humorous lore behind it overshadows it sometimes. But this is another one where her vocals are just she's sort of hushed and lulled at the beginning and then as the music builds like she just keeps layering and layering and layering and eventually you get to the you ought to know line and she's just i don't know how to describe that it's somewhere between like squealing and howling and like it's just so guttural but so necessary really and the music drops out when she does it and i think that's a perfect decision um like she should just be the one shining there. Uh, the moment I want to talk about here is the second pre-chorus. Um, I, I think most people are going to recognize one of the lines from here. Because the joke that you laid in the bed, that was me. And I'm not going to fade as soon as you close your eyes and you know it. And every time I scratch my nails down someone else's back, I hope you feel it. Well, can you feel it? <laughs> um <laughs> Tim, Tim did the imitation of how she screams that, and like you have to. I'm reading these straight, but in my head, like I'm I'm howling it it's, like she would. It's it's really it's really outstanding. Just I don't know. Just two thirds of the way through this song, I want to like run through a wall every time. Yeah, like, I could be like very calmly sitting somewhere, and if the song just happened to be on, like two minutes in, I would just be like, I have to murder something. Like, just, it's <laughs> so mad. <laughs> Um, it's so good though it's just so visceral in the best way Um, but yeah I just like that as right it takes that that stereotype of okay he's with someone else I'm at home like just thinking about what went wrong crying I'm alone like that's where she's sort of positioned herself but then the the punchline is like, you're always going to think of me. Like, I may be here, but I'm in the position of power here. That, like, when I scratch my nails down someone else's back, you're going to feel it. Um, and I think she does this throughout Jagged Little Pill, just reclaiming those spaces as, yeah, this this is vulnerable, um, but that can be a very powerful thing. Um, the next two I want to talk about in conjunction with each other, and it's mostly because they're two of the, probably the two... No, I forgot about one. There's so many hits, I'm getting lost in my own ranking. <laughs> um, <clears throat> these two are also big singles, and I just I couldn't go without talking about them at all. Um, and the first one is You Learn, which, and the second one is Hand in My Pocket. And I, I, I like to think of these as a piece. And the reason is You Learn is sort of the... It's kind of like a realization of bitter reality. The chorus that you live, you learn, you love, you learn, you cry, you learn, you lose, you learn, you bleed, you learn, you scream, you learn. Like no matter what the emotion is, you learn something from it and then you keep going. And like, like that's what life is. You just kind of have to keep going. No matter what happens, you're learning something from that and you keep moving forward. Um, whether that's, that's pain, happiness, joy, anger, whatever that is. Uh, and then hand in my pocket, which, if 
you ought to know makes you want to run through walls. Hand in my pocket always just makes me want to like go to a rocking chair and just like just chill and just vibe. It's so um, casual and so low key in a way, and like it, it really has this kind of hippieish vibe to it that. Like, if Alanis is not in full-on anger mode, um, or full-on righteous indignation, then she sort of moves to this, like, sort of peace-loving hippie type thing. And I don't mean that as a as a, a diss or a bad thing. Like, she embodies that very well. I think that's probably truer to how she is in person, and Jagged Little Pill was, like, this expression of great angst. So um, they took all the anger of Canada for who knows how many years, put it into a single album, and they still the couldn't be angry I forgot to mention time. that. Like I said, it's so raw and unvarnished, and like that's what makes it so powerful. And like this is all from a Canadian. Like, no other <laughs> Canadian act is this angry. <laughs> um, but it's similar to the you you know you whatever you learn structure of you learn hand in my pocket. And the verses has this sort of consistent, I'm broke, but I'm happy. I'm poor, but I'm kind. I'm short, but I'm healthy. Yeah. I'm high, but I'm grounded, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the important one is I'm lost, but I'm hopeful. And like, if you learn is all about kind of that bitter realization of no matter what the experience is, you're just kind of learning. So you can keep going through life. Hand in my pocket is the acceptance point of Oh yeah, like I'm I'm all of these things at once. I contain multitudes. I am I am all the good, all the bad. Like this this is my personhood. That's what I am. Like there's not one thing to define me. And I think that's just important in itself that it's a woman leading off the song with that that I am all of these things at once. She will not pin me down and that it's set in sort of this hitchhiking narrative, which is so often a male construct that like right there are other people in that journey inherently but she's in control of where she's going of guiding herself of moving herself um but the end of that has kind of a twinge um and it's where she keeps reading everything is just fine 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 um so i got one hand in my pocket and the other one is hailing a taxi cab and you like that's open enough that it could be like well is that to like some place new and exciting and free or is that i need to get away from something toxic and it could be both in one but um just the way she says just fine 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 it makes you wonder like okay well is this an acknowledgement of like life happens, you just kind of have to keep going, and I am all of these things at once. Or is it trying to cover for something darker? Um, and and that's a level of nuance and <clears throat> ambiguity that certainly is in many, many, many female written songs, but that I don't think are often the focal point in critical write-ups. Um, but I think here you have to wrestle with that. Um, so moving next, we have two more hits. Uh, first is Head Over Feet, and then we'll get to the big one. Um, and Head Over Feet, I want to point out, just because the album is not all indignation and anger and spite, um, but this is another, like, this is a song about what it's like when, you, when you're actually with someone good and when love is happy. Um, but it still has these weird moments where it's like, well, maybe. Um, and the... The iteration at the end of the chorus every time of I couldn't help it, it's all your fault. 
and just phrasing it that way it's like okay well is this good or bad now like this is a song about being overwhelmed by genuine care and becoming enveloped in that and then this reiteration of it's all your fault makes you wonder like okay are you happy about this or not like how should i be feeling about this and again it's just a level of nuance that it's not that it never existed before it's just exciting to see it on an album that was so popular and songs that mean so much to so many different people and that had such a wide reach all right let's get to the big one ironic which that's the big one i feel like it is all right i feel i feel like it is because of the jokes made at his expense that like everything she's saying isn't actually ironic it's just coincidence and it's like yeah but you see how that makes the entire song a function of irony then right and that's really what i want to say about it that a lot of more set is smaller or smarter than all of us and um this has to be the most pedantic thing we're ever gonna do and i'm saying that knowing what we usually do but this has to be the most pedantic thing we have ever tried to suggest, and I don't know when it will be topped. So I'm I mean, glad everyone's sh- here for that. Like, I'm not even being sarcastic. I'm just, I'm glad we're all in this together. I'm having a moment of, like, obviously I can't hear the audience, but, like, why are you yelling at me? I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right. And I think this speaks to how smart she actually is as a songwriter. And... As far as I can tell, she's stayed above the fray of, like, it's not actually ironic, Alanis. And I think the song speaks for itself that, well, you got joked. Um, To me, that's just really clever. Um, And I think, you know, oh, God, 25 years on? Wow. Um, Man world. Um, That, like, she still has that... Like, I got the joke, I wrote it, you still don't get it. I think that just speaks to her ability as a songwriter. Um, But the outro, again, or to that one, is again a a moment of, like, stuff happens in life, and you just kind of have to keep pushing. Uh, And yeah, life has a funny way of sneaking up on you, and life has a funny, funny way of helping you out, helping you out. Um, You know, the good, bad, it's all wrapped up in one. Like, this is life, we just have to keep living. And to that end, the last one I want to look at is Mary Jane, which was not a single, I don't think, or not a big one anyway, not like those other five or six. Um, And it's a rare moment, but an important one where Alana seeds narrative focus. Um, All of these other songs are about her experience, about her living, about her perspective as she goes through the world. Um, and this one is concerned about presumably another woman character that she's watching Mary Jane, um, as that person falls into depression. Uh, it seems like an eating disorder and just sort of loses any interest in verb for life. Um, a great line at one point, please don't censor your tears. I, I think that that line speaks multitude that she chose censor there as the verb, um, Right, that indication that we don't want to see the crying woman because that's not something that men want to deal with. But it's, I think that was just a very great writing choice. Um, but the end of this is, tell me, tell me, what's the matter, Mary Jane? Tell me, tell me, please be honest, Mary Jane, tell me. 
And I think that ending of just tell me is very important because Jagged Little Pill is an album where Alanis is telling you, here's my experience. Here's what it's like for me. <clears throat> you know, here's what it could be like for other women as well. But Jagged Little Pill is a very personal, very um, unique and intimate album in that way. And it's Alanis sharing all of this to the world so that others can can benefit from that and, and can find those moments of connection and empathy. But that this song ends with tell me um, that call for more people to do the same, um, to not censor their own feelings and emotions, but to uh, as much as possible be open like this. Not that they're going to be able to make an album of this magnitude in terms of the resources that she had to begin with, um, or that's going to sell 33 million after the fact. Um, but just tell me, tell someone like be open with your story. And I think as I've tried to make the case here, like that's clear on all of this album and it's a lot of pop hits that maybe you don't dig into, but I think there's some incredible writing here. And, um, you know, Alanis's voice sticks out the most for good reason, but her lyricism I think is very on point and very clever. Anything you want to say about our fiery Canadian? <laughs> Honestly, I'd forgotten that that song was about Dave Coulier, which I guess that means I'm not as online as I thought. But also, I don't I don't know. I I guess I'm going to do vocals again because that's the only thing I know about. But there really is something out of the three people we have to work with here. She is far and away the, the finest vocalist and the most dynamic and can do the most with her voice. And the, the emotions all, all feel stronger because of it. And I think it, it might be easy to, to read that as like, I don't know, some kind of overreacting thing when in fact, I think it's just, it is, the the first best way she has to garner attention for these thoughts and she has she has the voice to pull it off and it's it's always incredibly exciting to listen to her like her voice is literally hysterical at points and i think that's another moment of like she's purposefully positioning herself as that and then just making that like recasting that entire position as as a point of power as a point of control um that this is not the hysterical woman even if her voice may be fitting into some of that trope um but she's using that as right this is totally unique to her no one else sounds like alana's morissette really um and then it becomes a space for her to um you know whether that's to attack an ex-lover whether that's to um you know, call out for someone else to tell tell her them their story, whether that's to be the hippie hitchhiker, like whatever that is. The, like the voice is the focal point again, um, and always always clear in the mix. Um, I do have one so, question. Sorry, go ahead. Um, do you think Weird Al has stopped stalking her yet? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> for the other. I don't know how many of you there are, but to everyone else out there who has all of running with scissors in their head, <laughs> you're welcome for that. <laughs> God, I need to find a way to <clears throat> to get running with scissors in here. <laughs> you can't. I'll choose it. It doesn't matter what it's up against. I'll pick it. <laughs> I'm going to go back and look at everything coming up in future episodes. There will be Weird Al on this podcast. <laughs> Well, I guess it's time for Weird Aussie then instead. <laughs> yeah, Weird Aussie. Um, so Courtney Barnett 
has a couple EPs before this, but in 2015 releases her debut, Sometimes I Sit and Think, and Sometimes I Just Sit, which I'm already on the record as saying is the best title. <laughs> and Barnett is, on the one hand, great at guitar. I don't want to say like virtuoso level, but what Morissette can do with her voice and all of the different feelings that she can create and manifest, Barnett's able to do with guitar most of the time. Um, so she's a, a very, very good guitarist. Um, and working similarly in sort of a post-grunge post grunge mode um, and putting some spins on that, there's some psych- psychedelic in here. Um, occasional callbacks to like even 50s and 60s type stuff. Um, but in general, it's, it's a full band effort, but it's focused on Barnett's lyricism <clears throat> and her guitar uh, outbursts. So where Morissette has those vocal outburst moments that we talked about and highlighted a few of. For Barnett, the punctuation is going to be the guitar because her voice is mostly, there's sort of a laconic cool to her. Um, it's it's not disaffected necessarily, but it's this like, she's sort of stream of consciousness musing at us. Like she's not always singing a vocal hook either. Sometimes she's just kind of talking over the, <clears throat> over the music, but it works perfectly. Like it, it's this, uh, I think a productive sort of aloofness that is anything but because what I want to talk about is how perceptive she is and how um, how great she is at taking small moments and making those points of great contemplation, really. Um, <clears throat> but to begin, we're going to start with Pedestrian at Best, which doesn't do that necessarily so much as I just think is funny. Um, the and this is a song, it could be about fame, it could be about dealing with that stature, with popularity, it could also be about a relationship, it could be about, um, you know, again, playing that scorned or jilted lover thing and just attacking whoever the ex is. Um, or, in the case of the chorus, there's a, there's a moment in 8 Mile. So here's our Eminem reference for the episode. Um, at the end of it, like his sort of grand passage is the freestyle he does just pulls out everything wrong with him, all of his foibles, uh, everything that someone else could attack in a battle rap, and then basically ends it with, now tell me something I don't know about me. And the chorus to Pedestrian at Best to me is a similar thing. So... Put me on a pedestal and I'll only disappoint you. Tell me I'm exceptional. I promise to exploit you. Give me all your money and I'll make some origami honey. I think you're a joke, but I don't find you very funny. So it starts off with that, like, sure, build me up, tell me I'm exceptional, whatever. Like, that's not how it is. I have a better sense of me than you ever could. And if you give me all this... I'll make some origami. I'm going to do something kind of superfluous or whatever I want. But like she has control in that entire chorus. Um, so I think in, in the spirit of Liz Fair, of Alanis Morissette, of, you know, staking out that position very immediately, Courtney Barnett does that as well. Um, but I think Barnett has a way with just kind of putting words together and like finding interesting ways to express things. Um, the second verse, my internal monologue is saturated analog. It's scratched and drifting. I've become attached to the idea. 
it's all a shifting dream, bittersweet philosophy. I've got no idea how I even got here. I'm resentful. I'm having an existential time crisis. One of bliss, daylight savings won't fix this mess. Underworked and oversexed, I must express my disinterest. The rats are back inside my head. What would Freud have said? It, it's just this layering of thoughts in a stream of consciousness fashion, but right, just, there's a lot of great ideas in there. Like, your sense of your own thinking and your own mind, um, the sense of your own internal monologue, and like your relationship, good, bad, ugly, whatever, with your own thinking um like there's a lot that you could do with kind of a mental illness reading of that um you know underworked oversexed obviously those are hitting on much bigger issues um and stuff that's going to come back in future songs um but i think pedestrian at best in general is partly that book i know me better than you ever could but then also in the verses a wading into the mind of courtney barnett and like okay you want to know here let me throw everything at you um and it's like as she's sort of talking and singing through all of it it can be kind of overwhelming because it's just phrase after phrase after phrase um meanwhile musically the song is great i think it's the standout single of the whole thing like it, it's so crisp and exciting and vivacious um so pedestrian at best um as we move on here i want to look more and more at like small moments where it's not sort of this just stream of conscious throwing of thinking um but how she's able to pick little moments in life and make those into much grander things um but before i do that i want to talk about small poppies which if you you need me to make the case that Courtney Barnett is a great guitar player. I want you to listen to Small Poppies, which is like a six-minute song and starts with this sort of like loungy, like laid-back vibe. It's just sort of loosely meandering. <clears throat> and then you get the like dun-dun-dun-dun, like build into choruses, and the whole song is building along the way, and then it's just guitar pyrotechnics at the end. And it's one of the few moments where she actually breaks from that sort of laconic mode and towards the end in particular you hear like a growl or sort of a grit in her voice um and that's always a really exciting moment to me that's another one where like i kind of want to start running through walls at that point um and when she's doing that she's saying i don't know quite who i am oh but man i'm trying i make mistakes until i get it right an eye for an eye for an eye for an eye for an eye i dreamed i stabbed you with a coat hanger wire um, which is a great turn in the final line, I think. But um, it, I think that song is just a great illustration of how good she is as a player as well and how much that brings to the table and how, you know, what Alanis can do with her voice, Barnett can do with a guitar um, and that the feeling in her playing is just as important as a turn of phrase that, that Morissette might make. Um, so let's talk about three songs then that I think illustrate these small moments become big uh, contemplations. So first, Depreston, which is a play on Preston, which is a suburb of Melbourne, um, and kind of the depressing reality of gentrification in general. Um, the song starts, the conceit is <clears throat> that a, a couple or, or a few people, whomever it is, friends, are going to... Preston to look for a new house um, and it becomes 
so they see a police officer arresting a man um, for very unclear reasons, and there's a there's a couple lines in there ruminating on coffee shops and how they just got a new percolator. Never made a latte greater. I'm saving twenty three dollars a week. Um, <clears throat> about the house, it's got a lovely garden, a garage for two cars to park in, or a lot of room for storage if you've just got one. Uh, and it's going pretty cheap. You say, well, it's a decreased estate. Aren't the pressed metal ceilings great? Like, it's just all these very little, seemingly innocuous, unimportant things about searching for a house um, in, a, in a suburb that looks like any other. And then we start getting these moments where she's talking about little details that she found in the house of previous owners. Um collection of those canisters for coffee, tea, and flour, a photo of a young man in a van in Vietnam, uh, and I can't think of floorboards anymore, that like suddenly there's life to this place, that it's not just empty and hollow and static, that someone has lived here, there's a story here, and now it feels wrong to be in this house. Um, but then the ending refrain, there's not actually a chorus in this song at all, which I think is interesting. Um, if you got to spare half a million, you could knock it down and start rebuilding. And she goes over that several times, and I think that's, one, a crisp summary of gentrification in general, um, that you could just knock everything down and start rebuilding however you want so it looks like everything else. Um, but also what it takes to live in a space that someone else has had that was home for them, that you have to knock it down and start rebuilding. That um, right, She can't think about this house as potentially her own when she sees all those uh, moments of character in them and, and moments of actual life. Uh, second song, Nobody Really Cares If You Don't Go to the Party, is well, another hold great on. title. I, they, as a song, yeah, go ahead, Tim. It's, um, it's also the national anthem of my home, as I understand <laughs> it. It's, um, <laughs> I don't know that it's literally my wife's favorite song, but the 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 chorus that is the one that we find we find relatable like if if people you know those like home sweet home or like lord bless this house crochet things that people do ours would be i want to go out but i want to stay home which is really what i want to talk about in this song because i think that's just i don't know i feel that one so hard as well so maybe that should be the national anthem of my apartment too <laughs> um now I'm going to have to think what the national anthem of my apartment is. I'll come, I'll, I'll be back with you, everyone, on Bonus the next episode. episode. <laughs> Probably. Don't think about that now, Matt. Keep going. Um, I, I think this is just a, a very funny song about extroverts and introverts and how extroverted qualities often are coded as good and introverts are seen as weird and like trying to take that space back. So again, another moment of resting narrative control, but just all of the feeling in a line, like I want to go out, but I want to stay home. I feel that struggle eternally. Um, and yeah, that I, I'm glad that has a connection to your household because that was really the part I wanted to talk about. I just think it's a, it's a it's a short song. Um, there's not a ton happening here in terms of quantity, but I think it's able to capture a sort of the dichotomy between introversion and extroversion and how that plagues on mental health. Um, and do so in a very funny way. Um, and that is really summarized by a simple line of, I want to go out, but I want to stay home. And that, 
kind of eternal struggle that I think a lot of us feel, especially now. Especially uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> and the third song I want to talk about on, on this angle is Kim's Caravan. I think Depreston is probably the most uh, poignant example, but I think Kim's Caravan is probably the uh, most powerful. Um, so it starts, the very first line is watermarks on the ceiling. So like we're already in this just space of like looking up sort of lazily and just seeing new things in the house but then it goes pretty immediate immediately to seeing a dead seal on the beach uh, and i'll just start reading from here <clears throat> i see a dead seal on the beach the old man says he's already saved it three times this week guess it just wants to die i would want to die too with people putting oil into my air but to be fair i've done my share guess everybody's got their different point of view I was walking down Sunset Strip, Phillip Island, not Los Angeles, got me some hot chips and a cold drink, took a sandy seat on the shore. There's paper on the ground. It makes my headache quite profound. As I read it out loud, it said, the Great Barrier Reef, it ain't so great anymore. It's been raped beyond belief. The dredgers treat it like a whore. It's moments of staring at the ceiling, of walking down the street, of seeing a dead seal, of seeing litter, and the vast implications that that has um, and that it all builds to pollution in the first example and uh, climate change and the destruction of barrier reefs in the second. Like that's something that connects all of us, but it comes from this singular experience of I was walking somewhere very particular and saw a dead seal or I was walking somewhere very particular, not even the famous one that people know and saw a bit of litter um, and suddenly it becomes this rumination on how the world's destroying itself um, and how we're implicated in that, each of us. And I think the way she just kind of tosses off, guess everybody's got their different point of view. And so once really, <clears throat> I think it's a good decision how it, it's not played up necessarily, but it's just sort of there. Um, Cause that's how some people actually think. Um, but then also that as kind of a justification for continuing to take those actions for continuing to pollute and litter and such. Um, so, and then by the end, it sort of becomes not something else necessarily, but something more. <clears throat> and we have a refrain of, so take what you want from me. Don't ask me what I really mean. I am just a reflection of what you really want to see. So that idea, we all have different points of view that, um, I mean, it's sad. It's like, does any of this matter if it's just what we want to see? Um, and the, so take what you want from me. Well, does that refer to Barnett or the narrator or to the earth itself if we're talking about pollution and <clears throat> and global warming? Um, I, I think it just it opens up in really interesting and clever ways. But I think the way she's able to move lyrically from here's this very small, mundane seemingly unimportant thing and suddenly we're thinking about the ways in which we're implicit and the pollution of oceans um in the ways in which we are involved in the destruction of our own habitat <clears throat> and certainly the other songs you know they don't have to go to that grand of a scale or to that cataclysmic of a scale but <clears throat> i think the way throughout the album that barnett is able to take these very small moments these very innocuous things and those become a glimpse into her mind, into thinking in general, into the state of the world, into 
massive issues of um, pollution, of environmental concerns, of <clears throat> gentrification, of economics, of name it. Um, she's able to take these small moments in everyday life and those become instances of much larger concerns. Um, <clears throat> and just kind of to wrap this up, the opening song, Elevator Operator, is written about someone she knew that liked to go to the top of buildings and just kind of look out. And um, I forget the full story, but it was basically like, he just liked to look out and think about the world and its vastness and like what would happen if he could control it. But like that was just sort of a, commun a communion moment for him. But she thought he was going to jump for the longest time. <laughs> um, and so the, the, the song goes through that narrative and of realization and ends with this interesting moment of, I'd give anything to have skin like you. Um, and I think that's a reference to, like, that's a person just doing what they want to and what makes them feel important and happy um, and to not really care what, what other people are saying about that um, and to just kind of follow your own drum in that way. Um, and I think that that's the opening song is significant because then everything after that is, I think, Barnett on that same journey of, you know, how do I become comfortable with my own skin? Um, Pedestrian at Best is the second song. It's like, well, here, let me tell you everything. Good, bad, ugly, whatever. Uh, and then on and on we get these small moments from her life that become larger attempts to understand. Um, so I think there's a lyrical journey on this album that's just incredibly clever and Again, musically, her guitar is just as expressive as anything else happening between these three albums. Um, anything else on Courtney Barnett for you? Um, you want me to do the little spiel while you think? Yeah, do the spiel, because honestly, I'm, I'm having like, whichever one I hear last is, is more impressive to me, and I'm... I'll tell you, I will tell you where I am to start with, and then maybe you can, you can try to set me more right. evenly. Um, I feel like Alanis is doing more of the Liz Fair, like, clinical strikes, emotional truth, expressing it with, with this terrific, uh, straightforwardness that's, that's really impressive. And of course there was the, the incredible pedantry moment where, where we got to, to learn about irony. So that definitely is influential. But Courtney Barnett is, is coming at this from like a literary perspective almost. Like it feels it feels like it's it's not just clever and like a, a song at a time, but there is a great depth to the whole thing that that makes the entire work as a whole stronger through the the strength of each individual thing. So like, I don't know. I'm in an interesting place right now. I, I think you're right. You said in a previous episode about um, the Diary of Anne Frank that like, it's about people before spectacle. Um, and what you just said about Courtney Barnett, I was reminded of that. that right, she's able to take these characters, these small moments of life, um, and those become ways to talk about other things. Or not even that, because it's not that she's just setting them up um, directly as, okay, well, this is my way into this issue, but just they reflect the world around them. And then the, like that spirals out and gets bigger and bigger. Um, <clears throat> and in most of the cases, it becomes a way to think about, um, you know, who you are and where you are in the world. And I, I agree. I think it is very literary in that sense. 
Part of that may be the timing as well. Of course, this one's ten after ten years after Jagged Little Pill, so and Jagged Little Pill and Exile and Guyville being two years apart, like that is a moment where uh, f- women musicians are trying to really carve out a new kind of space in indie and alternative rock in particular and fair and Morissette are vital to that journey. So I think you're right that those two are similar on their own. Um, and there's a cleverness and an intelligence to both albums and the directness and how forward they are and how just raw and open and bare they are and how they both willingly just look at themselves and write songs about that, about their perspective and just share that intimacy with, with listeners. Um, and I think both do that in very smart ways. Like it, it is a way for you to imagine yourself in their position and find a bit of power or a bit of control or a bit of silver lining in all of that. And Barnett, I think, is doing a similar thing, but on a different scale, where for her, it's sort of accepted, like, okay, this album is going to be her perspective, so now let's hear on Courtney Barnett about the small moments in life and about the world in general and about how she sees things. Um, So it gets to be less aggressive in that way, I think, but um, through all three of them, and, and for the cases of this, for Morissette and for Barnett both... Um, I think there's great intelligence and great care and great empathy to their lyrics and to their music. And certainly they're, they're different in several ways, but I think in both cases you have very intelligent songwriters um, who are able to foreground their perspective and their experience first, and everything comes from that. And so everything is built through people here, and that's what's important to them. I don't know if that actually helped at all, but that was sort of a summary. <laughs> it, it did not help. Um, I figured not. <laughs> the short answer, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, and and this is not because of ironic, but I'm gonna go with Courtney Barnett here. And and usually when we do this, I I do give a little, a little consideration to is this in the vein of the original thing? And I like when it's in the vein of the original thing, not that it like has to be, but there's something, I don't know. There's if, if the category is about this whip smartness, there is something about the, the celerity with which Barnett can move from one thing to another. That kind of works for me. And in which I think I'm going to go with here. This is very, very close. This is the first very, very close one I've had for you in a few now. I wish both of them could go through, honestly. like I, I do genuinely love both of these albums, and I think everyone should take the time to at least revisit Jagged Little Pill. And An album I like better. For a reason. What's that? An album I like better. I would rather listen to Alanis than Courtney Barnett. I put, like... Jagged Little Pill is such that I like I don't forget about it, but I don't put it on all that often. And every time I do, it's like, oh yeah, and like then I'm just totally ready and in that space. And I think it's captivating in that way. I listen to Barnett more, um, and I, I certainly think I listen to sometimes I sit and think more um, because it kind of, it, it hits closer to what I'm 
most interested in at this point in my life. But both of them are great albums, and everyone go remember why Alanis Morissette is so exciting and unique and a treasure, frankly. But I'm happy to see Courtney Barnett go through. That's exciting to me. <laughs> it's it's a tough choice for me because I I really do listen to Alanis and Jagged Little Pill much more than then sometimes dot 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 but like that's it's it's sort of a neither here nor there and if we did this tomorrow i might make a different decision but i am at the moment i am content and your wife will not kill you yeah that's that's important too <laughs> so today we talked about the number 7 entry on the spin list liz fairs honestly seminal exile in guyville and I, I took Tim through the fun and sometimes pedantic and conflicting journey of whip smart women with Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill and all of its amazing hits and Courtney Barnett's Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit with its really perceptive and clever reflections. And Tim has chosen Courtney Barnett, which I am excited about, but... Everyone go listen to that and Alanis now. I think that's that's the real moral of this episode. So stay tuned for part two, where Tim is going to be talking about a movie that I reckon all of us know, and that we probably have many thinks on, but we're going to have to tamper that to some degree. Um, he will be talking about Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and <laughs> also go check out our website, which we have now. Uh, you can see the list that we're working with, the replacements that we're making, and you can go back in a, to the archives there and find any episodes that maybe you haven't listened to and see a bit about us as well. So for all things this podcast, please visit us now at subtitlespodcast.com. And yeah, have fun with that. Stay tuned for part two. <laughs>